I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. the incredible rapper and artist napoleon the legend uh he'll be making his left reckoning debut to join us in celebrating episode 25 i can't express just how thrilled we are to be able to hit this uh this milestone with all of y'all we couldn't be doing it without the support and especially all of our patrons um we're gonna be talking a little bit about joe biden and this infrastructure plan the communist menace um, what it's like to make art under the Biden administration, um, and much, much, much more. Uh, but before we get any further, I'd like to bring on my good friend and co-host, Matt Leck. How's it going, brother? Uh, it's going well, David. Uh, it's going well. I'm, uh, you know, context is key. You hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things we've learned from Sam Harris. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that context is an important concept. And um, up front, you would have heard... Joint Chiefs Chairman, uh, I, th- I don't remember his first name, Millie. His last name is Millie. Uh, makes me think of a Lil Wayne song. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, say that he reads Mao Marx and uh, Lenin. That caused Lenin to uh, trend briefly on Twitter. Um, now, he was saying it, I, has, I would hasten to tell people in a way that's like, we're not afraid of anything. We're afraid mm-hmm. to confront all ideas, right? Which is... Uh, you know, kind of what the military, that's the posture they need to have. Um, any, and I will also say some important context for that is uh, Ken Klippenstein's reporting over at The Intercept um, about the uh, Navy um, uh, Navy uh, internal police test. So this is a test you have to uh, pass in order to be Navy internal police. Now, I don't know much about the Navy internal police. Is, is it, I don't know if this is JAG or something yeah. like that. Um but whatever, like, but the question is this anarchists, socialists, and neo Nazis represent which terrorist ideological category? <laughs> and let me guess the um, un American political tendencies. Well, the correct answer is political terrorists. So, um, and that's a question. And uh, somebody leaked it to Ken Kippenstein. Honestly, they're not reading their Lenin. Yeah, go on. Oh, no, Lenin, Lenin very much hated political terrorists. He thought that they were uh, completely nightmarish for left political projects, especially um, because they were very individualistic, right? Which is not a, very, you know, not a big uh, communist or socialist trait, right? Thinking about yourself as an individual. Yeah, also, um, one of the more interesting things in Nelson Mandela's autobiography, I mean, it's essential reading, everybody should read, but um, 
is his just matter of fact discussion of why they didn't use terrorism as a tactic, right? Like, um, which is like it tends to turn people against group, you. Though that the the U.S. military considered to be a terrorist organization. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, maybe because these are the tests that they're uh, uh, <laughs> making people pass. Um, but um, damn, Medicare for all, equality, fair wages. What do these represent to you? Political terrorism and the end of the republic. Yeah, and. Another uh, bit of context that, you know, where context is key is, you know, throughout the whole uh, Bessemer, Alabama fight, Amazon was like, guys, why are you looking at us? We love the $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Stephen Greenhouse of the New York Times has a good tweet here. Um, It's actually a Guardian article. Um, But uh, let me just share this with everybody. Uh, The Teamsters have a powerful argument why Amazon drivers should unionize. Teamster officials say Amazon drivers earn $16 an hour in Southern California, while unionized UPS drivers there earn $38 an hour with $29 more an hour in health and other benefits. Right? Like, I I just want to read this. uh, Ask why the Teamsters are taking on Amazon. Randy Corgan, the union's national Amazon director, told The Guardian, it's a natural our union has represented this industry for more than a hundred years. We represent hundreds of thousands of workers in this industry. Truth be told, Corrigan continued, Amazon's impact on this industry is driving wages, working conditions and safety and health conditions downward. You have a lot of UPS, FedEx and US Postal Service drivers doing the delivery portion of this job. These are good paying middle class jobs for middle class families. Amazon's model is not good for working families. It's threatening middle class jobs. Yeah, I mean, this is not again this is something organizers were saying at the time but it's just really important to underline because that was their main pedal they pedaled to that all the time like just look what's up what do you want bernie pass a 15 dollar minimum wage well and that's one of those things where it's a lesson honestly um about political messaging it's like there's all of our opponents right now are almost trying to make it seem like oh well all these radical lefties out out there their favorite wage for workers is $15 an hour, right? <laughs> which it's not. In fact, we argue that workers not only should be, be paid much more than $15 an hour, that they should be entitled to all of the value that they uh, create, right? And it's so funny to sit here and like have these amazing arguments for Amazon who's paying the bare minimum, what we think should be, if you do anything less than this, you should be in trouble with the government, because you're doing something illegal. They're trying to act like this is some big pat on the back. And it's great to see the union sort of pushing back and saying like, not only um, are these not great wages, but they really are working to push down wages across warehouses in general. Yeah, it is the spear point for just an attack on just a whole sector of middle-class jobs. Um, And that's just in the delivery portion of it. Um, Not to mention like just the marketplace itself, um, all the other monopoly concerns that Amazon has. And it's a menace. And uh, yeah, uh, shout out to the Teamsters for fighting it. Um, Joe Biden, I think. Well, let's talk about, you know, union jobs here, man. I want to bring this. We're going to talk about infrastructure. Everyone's favorite conversation. Um, Just because (laughs) honestly, I haven't been able to talk to enough like normal people in the past week to see what their their feel has been on it but i think um most people are are starting to get the feeling you know who follow politics casually um that there seems to be a kind of dirty deal going on and i think they would be absolutely be correct i just want to flash back a little bit to remembering the conversations that we were having and i remember matt when we went to chicago with michael for our tmbs live show it was the same week that bernie had launched 
um, his Green New Deal. Um, and I remember sitting um, and having beers before the show with Michael and talking about how excited we were about the possibility of this being implemented, because not only could we really do something material about the climate crisis, um, but we could be bold and broad in a way that could really reorganize and redefine American society. And I bring that up just because early in the Biden administration, you saw that kind of like typical neoliberal finger wagging like pundit making that same argument, right? That Biden's plan is this kind of radical reshifting of American politics and American society, right? Because Biden has, I would say, and I think you would agree with me, Matt, like Biden has been very effective at releasing something that sounds big, not big enough by our standards, but something that sounds like, oh, at least he's moving in a certain direction and then delivering something very different. Yeah, ever since the Yemen uh, stop to offensive actions, he's he's the press release president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. The press release um, president. And Adam Tooze has a really good piece, um, and this is from a few months ago, uh, talking about one Biden's climate change plan um, and how inadequate it was. Um, Biden's COVID relief plan and making the point that, you know, Trump, in fact, was doing more for people than Biden was, um, you know, over the course of, of two different, um, you know, COVID relief bills under under Trump, um, you know, but the real hope and like the real thing is like, if Biden wants to cement a, a legacy as like a kind of radical reformer, somebody who might have not done the political style of the left, but somebody who was actually delivering on material goods, then it was going to come from this infrastructure plan, right? And they presented it in this way that it was going to tackle not only fixing the potholes and failing bridges across the country, but it was going to radically redefine um, what we consider to be infrastructure. It was going to provide education opportunities. Um, it was going to provide um, help for, you know, raising children, um, home care workers, all of these things, right? It took a very, very wide mandate to what infrastructure was, I mean, is. Well, now as we get closer to seeing what the actual Biden administration's plan is, um, we're seeing that it's in many ways, it's pretty similar to a typical run-of-the-mill Republican plan. We're still early in the, you know, in, in the process as it sort of comes out, these plans come out publicly, right? So there's so only so much that we could talk about, but we do have an agreement now from this, you know, 10 senator group um, that has, has come out. And basically anything that was particularly radical um, has been completely cult back. Um, and even by the own metrics that Biden and his friends were selling this plan to us a few months ago, it's completely failed. Um we're looking at something that there, you know, there's a lot of numbers that are being thrown around, but effectively when it comes to new spending somewhere in the neighborhood of only $570 billion in new spending. Right. Um, and that's, you know, delayed, that's not a lump sum that's coming out, you know, August 1st or something like that. Um, this is a very slow plan. And when it comes to tackling climate change, <laughs> It's it's not it doesn't even register, not even and like for people who are listening to this, who like might not consider themselves to be socialists or or, or progressives or something like that. We're actually like the point here is it's not just like, oh, it's not radical enough by our standards, but by the standards that we're trying to hold the international community to. Right. By saying you need to be spending this much of your budget to combating climate change and to greening your economy. It comes nowhere close. In fact, we're looking, um, and if you could pull up, I put it in the chat, Matt, um, this mm -hmm. piece, um, which is in, uh, in the American Prospect, 
Uh, there's a piece called uh, On Infrastructure, A Bad Deal is Worse Than No Deal at All um, by Alexander Salmon. Um, I just wanted to pull up this little bit here. They're using numbers that they believe to be extremely generous um, to what they're including as green spending, right? So they're doing this just to be as fair as you could possibly imagine. Um, th- even at a generous $79 billion number, this means 14% of the infrastructure package is being dedicated to environmentally aligned projects with electric cars and grid modernization, though those are the least ambitious parts of the environmental program. No major expansion of public transit, no major renewable power generation programs. The other 86% of the package is largely going to expand fossil fuel heavy infrastructure, including highways, ports, oil and gas reliant energy systems and more. Right. This is even by the standards that liberals put forward an extremely underwhelming, uh, underwhelming proposal. And we're not just trying to tie everything into an infrastructure plan here. We're making this point because infrastructure drives the way it are your individual and you need to get to work or you need to get groceries or you need to do all the things that we need to do to reproduce our lives, to live normal life. Right. And we make decisions based on the public infrastructure that we have around us, right. Be it public transportation buses, or for the vast majority of people in this country, getting on a public road and driving, right. These things matter when it comes to lowering our carbon footprint, what you have available to you is what you are going to do. And if you don't have any other choices, right, um, we're going to continue down this path of extreme carbon emissions to get ice cream or to go see your mother or to go to a football game, right? And these shouldn't be the consequences of modern life. There are lots of different ways that we can move people from place to place. But if you're not doing this kind of basic greening of our infrastructure, right? You are complicit um, and accelerating this devastation that is climate change, climate catastrophe, right? Like, I'm disappointed with the Biden plan in general. I was disappointed from it the moment that they put it forward. But to see this after all of this talk is is inexcusable at this point. There is a wide mandate to really... (laughs) beef up production in this country. There's a lot of people looking for work. There's a lot of people looking for a change right now. Our entire our entire economy and way of life has just been disrupted. This is a radical opportunity to do something different. And instead, we're going to get more and more of the same with an army of propagandists out there who are going to lie and try to make it seem like, oh, because we can present a price tag that might seem very high by you know, certain historical standards that this is doing something about these problems. It's not. And, um, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, Matt, but I just also can't ignore this, the most, you know, the, the hilarious political aspect of this, which is Biden doing what Biden and the Democrats have done since they've come back into majority power is say, oh, we wanted to do all of this stuff. We really, really, really did. But we understood that by taking off all of the critical aspects of it, um, and basically passing a Republican light plan here. Um, we could do that now. And then next session or in a month, we're going to pass the big bill. That's going to have all the things that we put on the cutting floor. 
I mean, do yeah. they think we're stupid when they well, do this? Yeah, where the situation stands now politically is Pelosi came out and said, we're not going to pass this bipartisan thing. Um, if you don't pass our, what they're saying is $6 trillion um, bill, right? And that's what, first of all, Pelosi should be doing. But the actual outcome of that, I think, is uncertain because what you could end up having is that just blows up the bipartisan deal and then you also don't get the um, the big one. And uh, that said, like, at least, like, it's... Let's make one thing clear that just passing the bipartisan bill would be a negative 100%. It would not be positive. <laughs> it should not be passed. Like, just the amount of selling off of roads, the privatization stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, that sort of stuff. David Dan covers this very well. Like, absolutely should. That's a red line. And so, like, if that gets passed, not only do you have to pass this $6 trillion um, Congressional Progressive Caucus one that Pelosi's saying, uh, the, the reconciliation bill, basically, which. I think Match and Cinema maybe like hinted that now they're open to thinking about that or whatever. You have to pass that, but it has to include more to compensate for how much of a sell-off this thing is. And, you know, like just to go over some of the uh, – well, actually, let's do this first. This is how the, they're paying for this centrist yeah. um, bill. Uh, this is from Jeff Stein. Uh, so it's confirming main pay-fors for the bill. $100 billion in net IRS enforcement. Now, I'm I'm – for giving the IRS more money to enforce taxes, as long as they're a trend where it stops going after, frankly, people in our bracket and <laughs> and fucking actual people where you can make some money, which it has stopped doing because of lawyers. It needs to be the IRS needs to be weaponized against rich people. Um, that's not what's happening here, but at least it's something. But then you start getting even worse. A hundred billion dollars in private public private partnerships, which we talked about, are complete jokes. And you should um, remember that that public private partnerships is is uh, public sell offs to private swindlers. I mean, the, this is for people um, to provide worse services at higher cost to all of us. This is not a solution. And as David Dane pointed out, um, is this something that uh, liberals were upset about when Trump was fainting towards? I remember covering it yeah. when Trump was waiting for, and you know, you're not going to see now. It's just you know, Mark fucking Warner's bright idea, um, uh, um, and you know, it's right like toll credits recouped in unemployment, um, you, unemployment insurance program integrity, which. Mm-hmm. Is to me, remember that Felix Salmon had that article? Yes, yes. Um, like, that's what that's about, right? Like, th- he, was, he was propagandizing for that. So I, I, I think this point is really important to make in the general, like, how are we judging the Biden administration historically, right? Because, I mean, there were a lot of really irresponsible um, people on the left um, who were making these kind of, like, grand statements about Biden that – this represents a definitive break with neoliberalism and with centrism in, in general. Just look at the size of the packages that they're putting forward. In this example, and we're going to talk about other examples of this later, right? They are using the yes large stimulus bill by American standards, right? Um, you know that Biden passed, um, you know, in, in Congress passed, and they're using that now to fund all of this other stuff. They're coasting right? on it. You know what I mean? Oh, so it's I like, see. So, yeah, yeah. You know, to say like, oh, they passed this two, $2 trillion dollar, you know, 
plan a few months ago and then they also say like oh yeah and now look here's 1.2 trillion dollars in new spending and they're just taking money from programs what should have been disseminated as much as possible in ways that uh, affected uh, americans bottom line um you know more goddamn checks because i'll also say this too um there is, as we sort of re-enter the economy, there's a lot of giddiness that everybody's ready to go. And I'm sure mostly we all are. But when it comes to the status of most people, a lot of the economic indicators that we're getting right now um, are not reflective uh, of the longevity of security that people have, right? Because people who received a, a windfall of cash, right, um, you know, from these stimulus payments, right, are in a better position than they were you know, a year ago, but those are starting to dwindle. And honestly, is it an even more critical point, in my opinion, um, for us to be getting the $2,000 checks that were promised to us um, at the beginning of 2021? Yeah. And so like, I, I would just say like, the the ask from progressives has to be this is bad what they're doing and so yeah. you need to give more of the so-called wish list of goodies that Jayapal was saying so which is and Bernie's talking about Medicare expansion absolutely that that's a yeah. must now um uh, uh let's see here's a few strengthen the care economy bold investments in affordable housing dramatically lower drug prices um and public health expansion bold investments in climate jobs expanded communities roadmap for citizenship includes so like all that stuff has to be a hundred percent in the bill um that comes if if this is going to be at all anything but a, a um a swindle i think and and hire people to do the work yes. that needs to be done in society because what it looks like we're getting from the Biden administration um, is after all of this BS uh, corporate propaganda about all oh, these people don't want to work anymore. They don't want to show up to work because they're sitting high on the hog because we gave people some very, very meager unemployment benefits. You know, we're already seeing the devastation here um, in, in Texas with Abbott's absolutely irresponsible decision aligned with many, many other Republican governors across the country to, um, you know, to not accept federal funds for extension of unemployment um, benefits for people. Um, we are at a moment right now where there are a lot of people looking for for shifts in their life. Um, and what we're seeing more from the Biden administration is this kind of timid response to right wing and like super pro capitalist criticisms of the, of the administration when it comes to the f frankly meager unemployment uh, benefits that we've we have right now. Um, you know, we're more likely to see a complete walk back of all of the beneficial things of the, the COVID economy, right? Which are some direct payments, a strengthened, you know, unemployment system. We're more likely to see a walk back from all of that than what they should be doing, um, which is like, this is just free advice for damn liberals, right? This isn't radical socialists coming to change like the full dynamics of the economy or anything like that. Um, this is saying, hey, let's hire as many people as possible to do the public works projects that need to be done, not just fill in potholes, Right. But aiding the the elderly and the and the sick, um, rebuilding community centers that have been devastated after years and years and years of mismanagement um, under neoliberalism and isolation under COVID-19. Right? There's so much that can be done. And this could be such a positive and very economically viable solution. What we're looking like we're seeing is just more and more walking away from po policies that were extremely damn popular in the first place. I, sorry, just as a bow, because this really just sticks. 
you, you listen to Texas Democrats right now, and, and their big message right now is that the Republicans are so evil and terrible and blah, 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 which they are. It's the genesis, you know, it's a death cult. We all can agree on that. But they refuse to reckon with their bleeding with like the black community in Texas or even um, in the Hispanic community in South Texas as well. And again, so no one gets the wrong picture. It's not that these communities flipped 100 percent to Trump or anything like that. We're talking, you know, margins, but significant margins. Right. And you know what we've been finding in a lot of the reporting from those communities has been, oh, Trump sent us a check and that really helped us out. Right. Why are the Democrats not trying to lean into that as much as possible? It's like, oh, we actually are wanting to promise more, more stimulus, more things that affect your bottom line, more things that just will directly put money in your damn bank account because we know that you need it. We know that you're, you know, you have debts and you have, you know, worries about paying rent and things like that. Why not lean into that? But instead, we're getting all of this desire for bipartisanship. Yeah, well, right. Like what we really need to do is see like Joe Biden and Mitt Romney hold hands. Right. And like that's going to solve the problems in this country. No, people need help and they want to look for somebody who's going to provide it to them. Um, yeah. Stay tuned for our uh, our, uh, our section on the very uh, old edition of the very short introduction to communism by Peter Singer for why oh, yeah. um, they uh, they uh, don't like it when people all of a sudden have, you know, extra money for an emergency. But anyway, uh, we got to get to Napoleon the legend. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, we will be back with that stuff uh, in a little bit, folks. Patreon.com says left reckoning. We'll do a fuller plug later, but uh, see you Perfect. in a little bit.
All right, folks, welcome back. As always, David Griscom with us, Napoleon the Legend. Uh, now, people don't know Napoleon. He is a hip hop and Afrobeat artist, prolific, uh, multilingual. Uh, I was thinking earlier, like David and I have occasionally thought about once we get left reckoning up to speed, doing a European tour. And if we had Napoleon on that tour, we would sell significantly more tickets, I think. Um, uh, uh, Napoleon, how are you? Join, I should say, um, join us from Berlin. So we appreciate uh, uh, staying up tonight. For sure, for sure. Like I said, I'm above the space time continuum as an artist. But when you, y'all do come to Europe, if I'm around, I'm, I'm down to, to, to go with y'all, you know? Oh, that'd be great. That'd There's be fantastic. I want to see for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I'm including... doing good. You know, I'm blessed. I'm happy to be with y'all. It's been a while. It's It's been a while. I know we were mentioning uh, before we went on that, uh, you know, Napoleon was with us at TMBS in studio, our last guest before the world ended. Um, it's It's just, it's still a little bit surreal. You know, you get a little used to it. Things like that feel like they're years and years and years away, but it was just last year. Uh, so very grateful to have you hanging out with us on this new venture and keeping those, you know, that community alive. Cause it really was, uh, you know, we were really steamrolling ahead at that point. Yeah. Hey, congratulations to y'all, man. 25 episodes, man. The new venture, you know I mean? I'm happy for you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I want to point out, like point people towards uh, episode 105 where Napoleon uh, gave us a very concise history of the coup history of Comoros. Um, uh, people should go uh, uh, check that out. Um, great episode. All timer. Um, and I, I couldn't believe it was only in fall of 2019. Um, like, the, like you said, the space time continuum is really getting stretched uh, these days. Right. Um, well, let's talk. One thing you talked about in that interview was making uh, art under President Donald Trump. How about uh, making art under President Biden? Um, what, is there been any change uh, to like your approach, or isn't it? Is, is it, we're kind of under the same under this behind the same eight balls uh, as we have been? Yeah, I, I think I think it's pretty similar. Like it's 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 um it's not a drastic change. I think that the COVID. May, it w- was was a change in itself where we were quarantined right. and for somebody like me it just made me you know just keep going extra hard it op- actually opened a few art- artistically opportunities for me because artists that wouldn't have reached out to me started everybody started reaching out to me you know and, and I got um a Kenneton from he's like one of the most prominent French rappers pioneers reached out to me because his tour got canceled I started making music with him and I did projects with a lot of people. But I mean, I think that Trump uh, kind of was like a pivot where since everybody got more politicized and I think mm-hmm. in the way I do my art and I talk about social commentary, I talk about what's going on. Biden's just a continuation because the problems are still there. It's just a different set of issues and it's a different lens. You know what I mean? And now it's about um, instead of the usual going back the brunch, you know, cliche that we use. It's like, okay, now we're not going to fall asleep on you, Biden. Like it's like high beams on you, just like it was on Trump. Right. That's very interesting that obviously now I think of the question, COVID clearly much bigger change because I just think of like every artist is doing digital collaboration and I'm seeing way more music on like Twitch, for instance, like that, Um, like Instagram live. I was big. Like you talk about that a little bit. Well, it's, it's, um, yeah, even me, like, uh, the shows that there was no more shows, right. 
And, you know, I did a few like internet live shows and stuff. They're not the same, obviously, but I just got, I, I just got to the point where first you see my hair cause no barber. So, <laughs> you know, we, we survivors. So I had to, I remember on Instagram, you were like really right. struggling with that. <laughs> I know people were going off on me cause it was weird. I just shaved it. My head was all white and chalky and, and I, I took the picture like that and I grew a beard. But I, I started like being more creative. Like I would write verses. I, I try to write like a verse every week and wrap it on my phone and put it up on a thing just to stay connected with people. And it actually went good because like everybody didn't have anything else to do but to be on the phone and, and, and watch things. So it's like it was about quote unquote content at that point. You know what I'm saying? But um, I think it, it created more collaborations between artists because of the internet and technology. And um, yeah, I mean, like we, we had to fight the isolation, you know what I mean? We had to find ways to stay creative, stay connected and hope that, you know, when, when things open back up that, uh, you know, we could hit the ground running. I think, I think that that was more, more so my mind state and a lot of artists mind state that I knew about, you know? And, and I think everybody reevaluated a lot of things, too, because people have more time mm-hmm. when you're out there working all the time, when you're out there doing everything like, the, you know, without talking about the negatives from COVID, I, I lost some people with COVID, a lot of a lot of bad stuff, you know, even mentally, like some some people I know committed suicide There's a lot of bad stuff. But on another point, I see a lot of people like make like like good life decisions changes like look i'm gonna leave i'm gonna go here i'm gonna go there you know what i'm saying which yeah. it would have never happened covid had not hit so you yeah take the good with the bad yeah i mean it was i mean even for like uh tmbs it was very much like when's the next live show it was just a constant like very next short term uh things yeah. and it did didn't leave a whole lot of time um for for contemplation well i remember that they, it, y'all was supposed to go to austin or something like yeah, that yeah. Yeah, i remember that's what, like when michael was walking walking me to the train station that's what he, we were talking i'm like you sure this show's gonna happen and he was like i don't know you know what i'm saying but in my head i was like I, i'm pretty sure it's not gonna happen yeah no i remember being very mad that night <laughs> and I was getting the feeling it's like my family, my whole family's driving from all over to see me in my hometown. Like, oh you know, man, I was like, I was very selfish for like a whole week until I realized, like, holy shit, this is like a very dangerous and serious thing, you know, coming our way. Yeah, I understand. Like, you know, it's like something was yanked away from us in a way. You know what I mean? And it, it just, it just flipped off the world yeah. all over. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see. I think like how we emerge from this with all the patterns that have been set. Like, like with music, I just think maybe TikTok challenges were a thing before, but they seem to be like a huge driver of culture now, like to the point where they brought TikTokers to the NBA all-star game. Like, like, like that stuff. I mean, that is just fascinating to me. Like, I feel like we're in a completely different, like I remember just going to shows and like that, that was my, that was almost why I moved to New York. I was, I always would drive from like Fargo to Minneapolis just to see concerts. And I got to say, I'm like itching to get back into, I saw a stand up show a few weeks ago. Like I'm, I'm really itching to get back into it, but I'm curious if what like patterns have been or habits have been set. Well, I think I think that when when shows start again for real, for real, like end of this year, beginning of next year, I think there's gonna be a huge boom where people are just just gonna want to do it. I, from what I'm hearing, right? I'm not an insider in any type of way, but from what I'm hearing from people in the music business, 
they're really ready. Like I'm talking about big, big business. I'm not talking yeah. about like artists that are like so struggling and that like don't have things going are going to have a, are having a hard time and are going to have a hard time. Artists that are in place and in position, they're, they're like getting set to cake out. Like, you know what I'm saying? Cause mm-hmm. people are going to want to get tickets. People are going to want to get out and do the shows because something that was restricted from them for a long time. Now, you know, I feel bad for the artists that, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be tough for some people and some people, of course, they're going to just, just benefit. You know what I'm you saying? Mean like and, the competition, like getting at venues and stuff. Excuse me? Like competition, like getting into venues and stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the, the bigger, the biggest fish are, you know, they're going to eat first and they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to eat the most, man. It's like everything else. It's like, there's no more mid, middle, you know what I'm saying? It's like either you're like there or either you're like, you don't exist. So it's good. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? I think I, I got, I hustle hard. I, I've, I've been blessed with a lot of great opportunities and I, I kept super consistent. So I'm not really worried about myself. I'm already getting calls. I should, I should start having shows probably like in September if everything goes right. So, and I think I'm going to keep going from there, but I know a lot of other artists, they probably is going to have a hard time maneuvering. Did Europe do a better job of protecting venues than the States did? Ah, man, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Europe is, mm-hmm. is it's like, it's a lot of different right, countries. Lot of different, right. I know it was, I know it was tough. You know what I mean? I know it was tough for the arts because the arts were like kind of the last thing. But like, let's say like France, which I probably know the most about because I deal with a lot of artists from there. Like the businesses were subsidized for the most part. You know, they, they were they were being helped and they were being held up. So now when things open back up, we'll see what happens from there. Yeah. But um, I don't know, man. It, I, I just know that it, it, it was kind of tough, but I think. I, or I'm guessing, and I think like booking agencies, like, you know, like Live Nation, like things like that. I think they probably took a big hit because, for example, um, uh, shout out to my boy Kenneton from the group I Am. Their tour got canceled twice due to COVID. And it's a Live Nation tour and it's a big tour. They, they take 50 people on the road with their team and everything like yeah. that. And it's, it's tough for them, you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, it's a lot of people eating, you know what I'm saying? And, and so I'm sure like these big booking agencies, had a hard time surviving, especially those that are American based, you know? Interesting. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, now that we let David cool off a little bit from his, um, Joe Biden stuff, uh, I want to kind of bring him back to that mindset a little bit. So, um, at Drag store, um, on Twitter had a, a thread that, um, pointed something out of, uh, Peter Singer's marks a very short introduction. You guys may have seen these very short introductions. It's a mm-hmm. common series. Now, I, I just want to point out this piece here. And, Do you know who Peter Singer is? Uh, is it, was he like the? Uh, is he like? Did he write animal rights pieces and stuff yeah. like that? Okay, so he wrote like to be a bat. Yeah. So, like, I will just say about that as I haven't engaged a whole lot with it, but I am very glad that the left that is, exists now is a little different. Is a little different than the left that like I grew up like that was all like sort of siloed. It's, it's funny to do to have him be the one who you get to do the Marx book, right? Versus like you know David Harvey or hell even like a Slavoj Zizek to be like, all right, let's get the guys talking about you know, like animal perspectives to talk about Marxism. Yeah, it shows sort of where it was at that period of time, right? 
So I want, so I'm going to share this, David. This is the first time David's seen this and it's, it's going to really upset him, I think. Um, well, it's going to make him laugh, actually. Um, this is from the conclusion. Um, many of Marx's other theories have been refuted by events. The theory that wages will always tend downwards to the subsistence level of the workers, the theory of the falling rate of profit, <laughs> the theory that under capitalism, economic crises will become more and more severe, the theory that capitalism will force more and more people down into working class, and the theory that to force wages down, capitalism requires an, quote, industrial reserve army of paupers, people who are unemployed or regularly employed or living near the subsistence level. Now, could you whiff? Like, that's like striking. <laughs> that's that's like, a big one, man. That's like getting like five strikes before you strike out. Like, wait, so I'm sorry. I don't, I know you, you know, you're pulling this from Twitter, but wait, this was 1993. When did this come out? Uh, this is the 90s, I think. Peter, let me look it up for you. Yeah, just because, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to read now and be like, well, this is 100% wrong, especially having lived through two major like world historical economic crises and like being on the other side of one right or still in it right now. Um, I think, you know, I mean, when you start to see a shift. Oh, 1980. Okay. Oh, so even, yeah. Well, honestly, though, but this is where you see a big shift um, in like, so like you have all this like fear and then this like, you know, chess beating that happens after the Soviet Union falls and you have all these left wing uh, philosophers trying to find some way to justify the years and years and years that they, um, you know, read Marx because it felt like neoliberal capitalism was just dominant and was the only game in town um but you also had a lot more security and opportunity in academia itself you could not get somebody um to be able to write something like that today who considered themselves to be a leftist just because even like the universities have become proletarianized in the sense that like the vast majority of professors now, they're not right. tenured professors, right? They're adjunct professors who make $1,500 a class a semester, right? So like just in your like actual life, like you've seen conditions get worse. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like the, the reserve, the, the, the pauper army, I don't think that could be demonstrated any clearer with the anxiety we have about unemployment uh, insurance in this country, right? Like this and the freak out we're having, like people think it's fucking great content to take a picture of some business owner saying please be nice to the workers that are here because you know we won't pay enough to like get more workers around here um like like i don't know it's it's an amazing like none of those are correct not a single one of those things that he thought was reviewed by events turned out to be reality i i think i think it's like it's like a, a awesome mistake in a way because it's like it's like the upside down world, but he was spot on, but just upside down. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think was like, was actually correct. Like you could have predicted all of this, but you, you were saying it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. It's I mean, crazy. And, and look, I think that he shouldn't have been the one who was tasked um, to do this. Just say somebody I mean, else has been fair. subsequently from yep. everything I know about him. And it's been a little while since I've been in like the philosophy uh, world. He seems to be a very good you know, person in general. So I don't want to like attack him too much, but my God, this is such <laughs> a great example um, as to what leads. I mean, cause what, this is eighties, right? Mm -hmm. What happens for the next few decades in left-wing politics, particularly in like the English speaking world, 
just wilderness, head in the sand. They had no idea what to do. Right. right? The left becomes Bill Clinton for fuck's sake. You know, after this, right? Um, it's it's an incredible moment. And you see I gotta that- say, I'm I've read about communism. I read Peter Singer's a very short introduction, and look, there's some things to take from it, but most of it's bullshit. So yeah, I mean, and, I mean, and other than like Richard Wolf, or like God bless him for like sort of sticking it out in the library somewhere, um, <laughs> and, you know, basically be pushed out of like serious discourse. Um, you know, thank God some people kept the the flame alive during the dark days. But um, this is why I, I always tried to like not being like a theory guy or anything like that, saying, "Oh, you need to spend all your time like um, you know reading radical theory." But like, look, they took this from us. Right. That even the people who were supposed to be like the tribunes or the people fighting for these theories basically reject them. I mean, honestly, read that section right there and ask yourself if that person is a Marxist. Right. Because those are like the core tenets of Marxism. Right. right? So there's this serious break in the history of philosophy and like left wing thought that like we're now reclaiming. And I think it is really important for us to reclaim. And I'm going to tell you where it's not going to come from is harvard or yale like it's not going to come from universities with grants and big donors who are going to try to do the work to reclaim the stuff next week for patrons we're going to be talking um with megan day about this kind of radical uh, college um in arkansas that was around in the 20s and 30s that really found that it's like it is our duty to like uphold these these traditions for working people for them to use them to better their lives and I understand that anyways like it was a very much a, 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 a victory of the right wing to basically be able to smash Marxism that even the so-called left at this time was just basically saying, yeah, all these things that are critical to our philosophy, I don't think we believe them anymore. Yeah. That... Now, you know, what's funny is that I, I don't have any background around the guy and yeah. what was going on at, I mean, like at that yeah, time yeah. with the in the left movement, but it, it's almost like he didn't believe in 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 his own tenets. It's like the, that's the vibe I get out of it. You know what I mean? Or he didn't fully buy into it for some reason. The arm's length. And and next month we're going to be doing a conversation on on a book that's really important. Um, I disagree with it. it's a bad book, but it's a book called um, Hegemony and Social Strategy, and it's like this genuine attempt from like that kind of worldview to like reclaim something for Marxism, but basically they, they erase everything that makes Marxism like a worthwhile, worthwhile theory in the first place. Right. Um, and it basically, it just becomes like, I mean, I don't want to bore everybody with it now because it's, you know, there's a lot going on with it, but essentially they, they make this argument, like we're going to get rid of class and we're just going to have like floating signifiers in politics. And then we'll construct a big group of people to win elections. Right. Well, that just sounds like basic Democratic Party or any political party theory, right? It's like, oh, we'll get, you know, this group of people to vote for us and this group of people to vote for us. And if we get enough of them, then we win, right? It's like, okay, well, what the hell? Why are we even dealing with Marxism at this point? You're just like anybody else trying to engage in politics. So a super dark time, man. And uh, uh, I'll just close by saying whenever people like get really down at the state of the left today, remember it's a lot better than it was in the 1980s man. honestly even in 2007 what well, my first major exposure to marx like where i was assigned to him frankly yeah. was in a 19th century philosophy class in college and i remember reading like german ideology and thinking like this shit's fucking dope <laughs> um but it was also being presented as if it was like dead like it was latin or something like right like mm-hmm. and and like and i remember like that that uh, that and I don't really remember like being in class at Minnesota State University, 
uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead very often. But that that I remember just like feeling like could this because like there's certain times of marks where it's like oh yeah that it is and it, it, it's gonna happen right yeah <laughs> like that sort of feeling and that tension between it's him saying it's gonna happen and you and you kind of buy in the logic and it being presented to you as this inert sort of like uh museum exhibit that i found fascinating and i think it's i'm i'm almost i appreciate that i saw it being presented like that because i don't think that's probably how Marx comes up these days in colleges. I'd be curious how he's uh, couched by philosophy professors like that. You know, you know, it's interesting too, because it makes me think that, you know, when, when the mainstream culture or the mainstream accepted thought or, you know, mm-hmm. with the economic system, with everything else, when, when, when you think outside of it, but you live in, in this place where everybody kind of like everybody is generally mm-hmm. accepted it, it, it's kind of weird what it does. You know what I mean? Even though something can make sense or something could be proven, like it's whatever he said wasn't going to happen is proven today. Like we see it and over and over again, it's like, it's hard when you're swimming in that pool mm-hmm. to like, you know, to, to really articulate it or to, to really believe that it's possible. And I think a lot of people have trouble with that because a lot of people don't have enough imagination to think outside of whatever is main, the mainstream thought is. And it, I, I think it's a problem because I see it. I see it in a lot of different spaces, not just, the, you know, economics and stuff like that. No. And in, in fairness to folks in the eighties who like started to have questions, it's like, you know, the end of the communist manifesto is poetry, right? Like Marx is like, you know, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose, but your chains, right? That's like, that's a claim that feels like it's, you know, thundering like through history and then you're sitting here in you know 1980 and you might wonder it's like well you know where are they like you see why this happened but one of the bigger problems was you had the left completely decouple itself from the class right like you had the left pretty much the left in the in the sense of like you know marxists or people were thinking in this way you know they're existing in universities for the most part and then a few people who very bravely fought the fought and kept the torch alive and were part of important organizations and i don't ever want to minimize uh, people who were struggling in that period of time but you know these weren't popular movements right so when you have the people who are sort of writing the history and the theory and they're just people hanging out uh, talking to other people who reading guys like Shakespeare and stuff like that, you know, ideas that might seem dead um, too, right? Um, you know, you could see how you could become disillusioned. But yeah, I mean, I think history has very much uh, um, shown <laughs> the opposite has been true, that these ideas are very much alive. Yeah. Well, should we uh, move maybe now to the mine workers uh, yeah. from Warrior Met, if you want to introduce this uh, coming up to Manhattan? I mean, you know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, th- these these folks for a while because this is a really critical strike. I mean, this has been 1,100 people since April 1st, I believe, on strike. You know, this is people who don't have the abilities to, um, you know, you don't have money in the bank. You're relying on the community. You're re- relying on support to maintain your standard of living, um, all while being faced with just brutal strike breaking tactics they've been showing up uh with scabs been showing up and running through the picket line there are allegations that these people the scabs have been polluting the the waters in the community i mean really horrific stuff um anyways the the fearlessness and the the drive has not gone away and these are um, the folks showing up in uh, manhattan uh earlier this week 
protesting outside of the financial firm. So this is outside of uh, State Street Global Advisors, who has a 11% stake in Wiremet Coal. Mm. Um, I also believe they were out front of BlackRock and a few other organizations. And just really bringing the fight uh, to the people who profit off of, off of their suffering and off of their exploitation in a way that I really love because I think one of the advantages that financial capital has, like historically, even to the boss, is its ability to disappear into just numbers and paper, right? No, totally. Versus being somebody in your community who like, oh, oh, this guy has a nice car, blah, blah, blah. Like this is some guy who lives in New Jersey. So he doesn't want to pay New York taxes, right? Yeah. Um, you know, profiting like crazy off of, you know, hurting people um, in Alabama. I think bringing the fight to them is critical and the image is beautiful too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, make, make make them uncomfortable, you know, and it's <laughs> like, and they 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 need that. They they deserve to be made uncomfortable and to to at least face. I I'm I'm sure some of them probably don't even care still. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because it's like money over everything. But there's a few of them that are looking at that, and they it, it sticks in their mind. And like you said, the imagery is powerful. And uh, man, these people are courageous, man. To just to come up from Alabama to to, to I don't know how they're staying in New York. Cause yeah, even all over that area is expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're taking a chance for, but but for the greater good, and and not only fine for themselves, but the, the future workers and stuff. You know, I, I love that too. Yeah, just like the broad view of it, and I, I just I, I also like I I have to say I think that um, it's important to take these fights into the streets of of Manhattan because it's one of those things when you walk through that part of, of New York, you're walking through it and, you know, I mean, it's super populated. It's obviously a different vibe than a lot of other places, but you know, at a certain point you're just like, Oh, I'm in New York. I'm in like the, you know, the big city. And you forget that's like all around you are just people who are just doing blood deals, right? just vampires. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and life is just nice, right? They walk out, they get a hot dog from, you know, the, you know, some guy whose country that they supported a coup against or whatnot. Right. And bringing that fight to them, I think is really critical. Yeah. I mean, just look at the, like, this is the architecture of this sort of place. Right. And, and that's something that just disgusted me since I've moved to New York and you see like homeless people sleeping on the streets and you have these massive, just vampiric citadels with these giant entryways that just like advertise look at all this empty space we don't need to do fuck all with we can buy some like extremely expensive pay- art from some scam artist who like just sells to lobbies like ours and <laughs> uh, right like um and, and it's just like like it, it, it is like that that thing you said david is so key about like whether it's capitalists or whether it's like the British empire, like <laughs> controlling shit from afar using like, you know, let's put some telegrams in, let's do all this stuff, being able to like one, like travel back to their homes and mm-hmm. two use this infrastructure now, which again, like we know this internet was created to spy on people, but to use it, to point it at like these actual, like, like these sorts of buildings, like they should be seen as just like the, just like, like the, the citadels of, of entrenched capital. And yeah. Power. Exactly. Like they're, they're like fortresses, man. I remember like my, my, my first dealings with New York when me and my boys used to come up and we would try to like get into like major labels and stuff without knowing anything. And we realized they're like for real legit fortresses or radio stations. You cannot get into them. You got to go at, from the lobby. They're not going to let you upstairs. And I remember us trying to sneak into these things. And then, you know, years later, I've gotten into a few. I've gotten a few meetings and everything. And the waste that happens in these buildings is like 
these people have these elaborate coffee machines and they have all this food and snacks. When you're in there, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And people on the street are like hustling for like nothing. Yeah. Hungry. It's, it's just, it's, it, it, that's the ugliness of capitalism, you know what I'm saying? And I don't think a lot of people get to see it. And for the people working on the other side, the the winners, so to speak, they're insulated from the outside in, in the yeah. same way. So it's like sometimes they, they they can't even realize they're in their own eco chamber, own bubble, and they don't. It's easy to dissociate yourself from the reality of what you're doing or, or the effects of what you're doing. Yeah, like the amount of free stuff because I've been in like a. a and you know someone in fashion and like those sorts of like it's first of all all the shit that's just available for free up there for it's tax it's probably tax deducted anyway as like as a corporate expense like i remember going also into the npr offices like early when i was first doing media and being amazed just that you could take books like all these hardcovers that were just review copies and like i I can walk out of here with like 120 dollars that i would have had to spend for these hardcover books brand new and you just get used to it. it like once you get to a certain point you definitely like can like it's it's uh, i forget what novel uh zadie smith i think swing time where it talks about just like you get into these industries and like you said like it's disgusting the amount of just like free shit and like all these nice furniture that nobody ever sits in and, and just and decoration and it's it's and you know amazing fabrics and stuff it's it's bizarre and, and they are citadels and it's yeah i just wanted to to hit this just because you know sometimes people come across these videos for the first time uh very briefly but like the story here is these yeah. miners um you know uh, have, have you know obviously been there for a very long time but the company that owned the mine before was struggling extremely financially um after the financial crisis um, and there was worries that the mine was going to close. So the workers all decided that they would accept a pay cut to make sure that this mine had longevity, right? Um, that company ended up going bankrupt and then it got bought out by a lot of Yankee capital, by a lot of like New York City financial firms. Um, you know, they all own different stakes in it. And the company, the mine um, became profitable um, to the tune of, I believe, millions of dollars. Um, and now the workers are saying we want to get a fair and reasonable contract like what we like we sacrificed to allow this place to continue. And all of y'all now are telling us that, you know, we don't deserve to reap in any of the benefit that we sacrificed. And like drop that shit for a second. The coal that we take out of the ground that you sell and you make all the damn money from that you don't think that we deserve, uh, you know, to get our fair share of that is absolutely despicable. And it just is such a clear example of why financial capital, um, like these, these are obviously moral questions, right? You know, you could say, oh, that's immoral, right? But these are systemic problems, right? It, you know, it's like, these are what happens when you have a financial firm in there. And the only thing that they see is numbers coming in and numbers coming out, right? They're going to do everything they can to make sure that the number coming out is as low as possible, right? And we have to start thinking systemically and talking about these, these things like that. And that's why I love this action so much too absolutely yeah they get they they get a convenient amnesia when it comes back to to rolling things back to what it used <laughs> yeah, to be exactly. They're like well I, we came in you guys were working fine with this this amount like forget about the past history this is what we're doing moving yeah. on it's like it's move very forward for them. yeah exactly 
Uh, well, Napoleon, um, anything you want to? You said you start up in uh, in a few months uh, live shows. What uh, what, do, what do you want to plug for us? I did enjoy uh, uh, Bulls or ninety six Bulls. Um, oh yeah, uh, was that that come out last fall, right? Um, I think it did. I, I think it did. Yeah, man. I, I, it was cool because I didn't play basketball in a while, and, and, and my mm. man was like, "Yo, just shoot a video," and I could still dribble, so I still got it. Oh yeah. But no, like um. Hopefully, I'm, I'm going to start having some shows in, in, in Europe. Um, so people are starting talking to me about booking me, like, uh, starting September. So I'm getting ready for that, trying to, you know, learn some new new songs so I can have an a, a updated set. I put out uh, three EPs with um, a Kenneton from I Am who produced them called The Hole in My Heart, One, Two, Three. Mm. All the vinyl is sold out, so that was great. I'm happy about that. Mm. Started rapping in French. Since like with the first time I came on CNBS, I wasn't doing it. Yeah, I remember. Since I talk about Comoros, Comorian Media like interviewed me and I spoke in French and it gave me the idea to rap in French. So it's something. It's like a different lane I'm I'm taking now too. On, I on noticed AJ. that on uh, Spotify, your your, mo- your heaviest players are French, and yeah. I I I've I've done like Duolingo and Rosetta Stone French, and I'm gonna start listening to some of those to try to like get my vocabulary up to speed. <laughs> Right now it's been it's been fun. I didn't know I didn't really even know that I could do it like rap mm-hmm. like that, and I can. So it's fun, and like so I got I got projects coming out. You know, in this summer I I probably have some more albums, a few more albums this year and next year. Of course, working on a lot of projects. Well, Napoleon the Legend at Team NDL. Uh, thank you so much, man. It was great uh, catching up with you. Man, always good to see you guys. Really Thanks good. for having me. All right, again, Steve, Thanks for staying up. Word up. Yeah, I get some sleep. <laughs> See, <laughs> I mean, Berlin's a Berlin's an all night town. Right. You can probably oh, go out and yeah, party right now. <laughs> See <laughs> Napoleon. Peace. All right, that was excellent. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was great seeing Napoleon, man. Yeah, man. I I, I go back and watch uh TMBS one oh five. That for like he, he nails a history of Comoros extremely well. I, I mean very uh you know, I mean a lot of patterns you might expect, but also um, you know, the specifics there are very interesting. Um, Absolutely. Well, David. Yeah. What should we uh, What should we wrap up on? Well, let's just take a, a quick moment. We'll get to some fun stuff in a second. Um, but you know, we got more difficult news today, and I have a very hard time uh, talking about this stuff because it is just so unacceptably. Um, evil Um, but in Canada they have found another site of mass graves Um, I'm trying to I did not put it in the notes but let me pull it up right now for us Um, they found another site of 751 uh, unmarked graves oh you have it right here Matt thank you Um, this is in Indian country today Uh, 751 unmarked graves is a wake up call um, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this name. Uh, Kawa Sessis, a First Nation in Saskatchewan, uh, says it discovered 751 unmarked graves at, at a site of the former Marareville Indian Residential School in a press conference Thursday. This discovery follows last month's report of 215 graves at another school. They are currently treating the area as a crime scene, as they absolutely should. Uh, these graves were found uh, using ground penetrating radar. Um, 
And it's a, it's, it's a horrific story. We talked last week with Lance from the surfs about the horrific history in Canada um, about these uh, residential schools. Um, let's remind people though, time and time again, these institutions are much more than just a cultural genocide. These are sites of torture um, and, and rape and, and genocide and deliberate murder of, of people. Um, and I just, we have to, you know, talk about it and acknowledge it, even though it's, it's very difficult in the United States right now. Um, the department of the interior has also said that they're going to be conducting searches of residential schools or boarding schools, um, here as, as well. And I'm sure this is unfortunately going to be, um, not a lone, um, result. I'm sure we're going to be finding much, much more about the devastating history, uh, but this, these are things that we have to reckon with and we have to, um, you know, we can't just turn our heads away from it because it's difficult and uncomfortable as horrible as it is and how devastating it is to your human heart to think about these tragedies done to anyone, um, but notably uh, children. This is a moment. Yeah. For we're going to live through of confrontation with history in many ways. And I'm convinced that this is why you're seeing a freak out over things like CRT. It's basically mm-hmm. like, like there's no, um, this signal is going to get out there. Um, these things are being investigated. Um, and so you need to create a whole bunch of noise. Um, and like you said, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but we're going to investigate this here because we absolutely should. If you have any, people should look up documentaries about the American Indian movement. Mm -hmm. Um, in the 70s and a lot of figures that were central to that movement uh uh uh, suffered abuse at boarding schools in the states uh just absolute like psychological torture um like we mentioned the um pratt i forget what the general um he coined the phrase kill the indian save the man Mm -hmm. um so it was like very explicit cultural genocide um uh, thoughts there on top of you know like um, kidnapping and uh, like all uh, like all all sorts of things right like this is a violent institution um, and it, yeah like I think all you can do is be ready to confront it and put it into context I mean we're, we're planning to do some more stuff on this um, oh, for sure uh, hopefully in the future and yeah all right. I'm just take two seconds because there's no way to transition from that. Um, Because we're going to talk in a second about Joe Biden and gun control. And we have some very, very fun footage along with something that I think Matt has not seen before um, because um, very much a kind of 2010 online political nerd thing. So I'm very excited for him to see this uh, regarding Joe Biden. But I just, I wanted to take a second and thank everybody so much for getting us here to Left Reckoning 25. Um, It's been a really incredible journey. It's been so meaningful for Matt and I to get the support from the community to be able to tell these stories and and to cover a lot of things that we felt weren't really being covered um, or weren't being covered in the right way. And we're looking to continue that and to expand you know, the crew eventually expand the scope of all of this. Um, and we couldn't do that uh, without y'all. Um, you know, so please, if you have been enjoying the content so far, so far, you know, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash left reckoning. 
you know, we try to make it as affordable as possible. Our lowest tier is $5, but you know, people ever need something, feel free to reach out. Uh, we can see what we can do. Uh, we also have solidarity tiers uh, to help us make as much of this show as public as possible because we want to make sure we're rewarding our patrons, but we also want to make sure that everybody um, who's interested in learning these lessons and histories and theories can get them as well. Um, next week, uh, we're going to be taking a brief vacation, uh, but there will still be content coming up. Don't you worry. Uh, on Monday, we'll be releasing a conversation we had with Megan Day of Jackard Magazine about Commonwealth College in Arkansas, a really incredible history that also has a lot to say to us today as we build these new left-wing movements a lot of similar veins um as well next thursday we'll be releasing uh, during our normal slot for if you a patron you've already seen this but for non-patrons check it out maybe you know a good reason for you to join for the next few um we're going to be releasing a conversation with milton alamani on the radical legacy of uh, pan-africanist and marxist revolutionary uh, walter rodney Phenomenal conversation. We always learn so much by having Milton on the show. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, I'm just excited because next month is going to be big. Uh, we have a lot of really exciting content coming up. Um, we're going to be moving to Wednesdays at, uh, at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Um, but we'll maintain Griscom streams on Tuesdays, uh, you know, normal relative time. We're going to be joined by Victor Puji to talk about Brazil. There's a new corruption uh, case going on there and uh, hopefully charges against the eco-fascist, um, eco-fascist, sorry, clown fascist and ecocidal um, maniac <laughs> Jar Bolsonaro. Um, <laughs> eco-fascist Jar Bolsonaro would be an interesting character, actually. <laughs> a good choice in synthesis, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, I mean, honestly, the way that some of the, the critics of Lula talked about uh, his imprisonment, uh, you know, it might fit a kind of like caricature, like, oh, they're putting Lula in prison right now so that somebody could come forward and really do something about protecting the Amazon. Yeah. Um, we're going to be doing, be doing uh, great conversations on Eugene Debs for patrons um, as well with Sean from Jacobin. And we will also be doing a deep dive into the, what we were talking about earlier, um, the really dangerous and damaging but influential work of the left populists, uh, Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Laclau, uh, social hegemony and social strategy uh, with the folks from What's Left uh, Philosophy Pod. It's going to be a really great uh, conversation, plus much, much more. Uh, so look forward to that. Consider joining us at patreon.com slash left reckoning. So, uh, David, Joe Biden is talking tough. <sighs> Joe Biden's talking guns, y'all. And it's just... It's it's difficult um, to do politics sometimes when we're not on the stage. And what I mean by that, when like a, a kind of democratic socialist movement is not the opposition party to a far right <laughs> Republican uh, GOP death cult. Um, it's it's frustrating because one, you get these kind of watered down bills like we're seeing with infrastructure, but two at moments where there's a lot of appetite for doing something radical and for changing things you just see this sprint into the arms of culture war nonsense. And I'm sorry, what this plan from Joe Biden to deal with guns and the gun epidemic, the gun epidemic in this country right now is a hundred percent that, and we're not even, 
Matt and I have talked about guns and maybe we'll do a whole episode on like the philosophical questions around the second amendment. Right. But at this point, what we're talking about is what Joe Biden is trying to do right now. And that is not solving this crisis once and for all. It's emboldening. It's emboldening the United States police and law enforcement uh, to start targeting and harassing people. What do I mean by that? Joe Biden's new gun control focus um, is, a fo- is a focus on cracking down on rogue gun dealers. And most notably, um, his focus has been encouraging cities and states to use the money from the COVID-19 relief bill to hire more police officers. So despite the fact that we just went through a whole year of defund the police movements along, you know, on the left. Kente right? cloths. What we're getting, Kente cloths and all of that stuff. What we're getting from the Democratic Party is essentially an argument and encouraging um, cities and states across the country to use federal funds that were supposed to help us all as Americans get through this devastating COVID-19 pandemic that is not over and the economic fallout is far from over from it, right? Instead of using that money to look look out for schools to make sure that we have more programs that can help people get the damn vaccine um, and um, you know all of these other things that need to be done in our communities across the country, instead of trying to encourage and strong arm cities and states to do more for people with this money that has been allocated, they're using it as a backdoor way to beef up police department budgets across the United States. And they're selling it to liberals by saying that we're finally going to do something about guns in this country. It's complete nonsense. And of course, can we just say that me for the Republicans, the gun issue is just a Trojan horse for tough on crime liberals. Like that's all this is like, like any kind of rise in violent crime is to, as far as I'm concerned, entirely explicable by conditions like a pandemic, um, right? Like like these sorts of things. And also, we should point out, um, like Ted Cruz talking about Austin, Texas, defunding the police, and now crimes rising. This well, it's also rising in Dallas and Houston. Those places didn't oh, yeah. do any, didn't do, didn't defund the police like Austin did. So like, we are in the midst of a genuine like panic. Uh, media panic, we should say, about like the state mm-hmm. of inner cities that that Yang tried to uh, run on himself. Like, like this, this, uh, this is a pronounced uh, thing that's happening uh, here, and it's it's and we should all know better uh, because this is like just classic. What what happened with the war on crime, so called? Yes. Well, we'd all know what happened with it. Well, I mean, long term stuff, what we all know is that any serious crackdown on gun ownership is going to be a crackdown on poor and uh, POC communities across the United States. I'll tell people who aren't familiar with rural America, particularly, you know, rural America that's uh, not white, a.k.a. most of the South. um, There is a significant amount of gun ownership across all groups of people in these communities and you want to you want to empower a bunch of public sheriffs to start investigating people for having illegal firearms put that that's on your conscience it's not exactly something that i'm going to sit around and support right i'm not saying that we can't have conversations about certain restrictions i'm all for it the gun industry in this country is insane the nra is an absolutely yes. criminal organization no doubt about it but what you get from liberals and what we're already seeing right now for the Biden administration is not some kind of oh we're going to have 
have a sensible, you know, we're not, we're going to deal with this thing sensibly. It's no, we're going to empower law enforcement to harass the groups of people that they already harass and target. And not only are we going to encourage them to do that, we're going to take funds that were allocated to help people through a pandemic. And we're going to try to get cities and states to use that to embolden an already extremely militarized and deadly police force across the country. Yeah. Come on, y'all. This is very simple what's going on. Yeah, like the... the Not the, to mention the politics of it. Right. Well, that's that's exactly like the... the Because it, there's no actual real... You're not going to do anything significant to stop any mass shootings or gun death problem in this country by just going after these illegal like sales. You need to take on the actual industry. It's le- The reason America has so much gun deaths is because illegal America has so many guns and those ha- aren't sold illegally. Like We sell yeah. those like motherfuckers here. So like you're going to need to do something and the only way to do this is first of all to shut up about it on the campaign trail I would say. like Just, just shut the fuck up about it. And then mm-hmm. when you get enough power to actually vote this stuff through or god forbid there's another fucking tragedy like las vegas or newtown then you go and say like this whole class of weapons no not going to do that anymore you just you just pass that but it's not a political issue at all like and i like it's a record political issue in my opinion like it's it's bloomberg uh used as a wedge against uh the democratic party honestly like itself it's 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 a a money maker i'm sorry it's a money maker on both sides Um, yeah yeah yeah. it's a huge money maker it 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 excites a base it doesn't uh, expand the yes and that's why like biden's rhetoric is so like annoying to me because it's like he's he's all he's doing is like validating people's narcissism on this issue which is like oh i the president's making the point that i've made against you know my bubba cousin and it's like well okay like fine like okay maybe some of these guys are a bit unrealistic about what they could do with a firearm but like i don't know like I, i'll just say this biden makes me want to own a firearm for deterrence when he talks like this <laughs> well we, we should play these clips and we're gonna play two clips here matt hasn't seen the second one um, because look, that's our serious take on on the you know on the gun stuff, and I'm, I'd love to do more conversations about it because it is complicated and like really sussing out a solution to it. I think is difficult, um, but I think that people should recognize that the way that this is used as a political football is extremely damaging to anyone who actually has any real intentions about trying to do something about gun deaths and gun better in this country, right? Um, yeah. Um, but also, more importantly, anybody who's serious about implementing any kind of significant radical bottom-up change in, in, this, in this country either, because there is just nothing, nothing that works so well to get Americans riled up than a story of, you know, <laughs> that they're going to come for your, for, for your guns, right? And it's really annoying, especially in southern states and like sort of ex-rural state, you know, states that are going through these transitions because it plays to a certain group of people, primarily upper middle class um, transplants. Um, and it excites, you know, c- traditional communities, people who have lived, right? Like when they do the, the gun stuff here in Texas, right? They're talking to Dallas suburbs um, and to, you know, Austinites in general, yeah. I would say. Um, right. But like, you know what I mean? And like, and then it just, it, it, it destroys the kind of political communities that we're trying to build up too. And it destroys it for no reason. Because what I'm saying is like, if there was actually some kind of effective policy that was being put forward, that was going to mitigate harm and, and, and death and despair, right. It might be a worthy trade-off, but what I'm saying is like, this is just, playing to uh, endless donor war 
Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. And, and, and in worst in this worst example is just being used to embolden the damn police force, which is not something that we should be supporting. Yeah. And the utopianism of like, well, we could do what Australia did. No, no, we can't. Like, there's absolutely we can't expand Medicare. <laughs> like, like we're not. They're not gonna like fucking like do an Australian gun roundup model. It's just, like we're literally closer to like like honestly like reparations. I literally think I I'm honestly I I honestly think right. yeah. that we are closer to reparations than we are to an like gun with forced buybacks. It's just not happening and. Um, like, like I said, like you need to take on the industry with legislation in order to do this. It's like stopping, like criminalizing this sort of stuff is just, like you said, it's just, it's just fodder for cops. Exactly. But let's, I'll, I got this. Or go ahead. You want to say? One yeah, more no. Thing? As you say, we have this binding thing, and I just, I was just to set it up. I love this clip one because it's, it's really wacky, and it's binding going back to like, um, you know, some of his campaign dynamics where he was just mumbling about something and nobody understood what he was talking about, which he's been on a roll about on this week, I must say, uh, with just kind of incoherent speeches and, and, and sentence fragments. Um, but what I like about this even more is this, this is the damn president of the United States essentially flexing on the American public saying, if you come for me, we're going to kick you, like, we're going to beat your ass because I got the military behind me. And I, I like it because this is like the most like banal, like liberal dad or like, you know, character, whoever you want to envision um, argument against guns for the conception of like, you know, democracy. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I love that. Like the president of the United States is invoking the same kind of like tired arguments about it, but also in this very sloppy way. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, like, there's no sense of place. It's like almost Trump-like. Um. The Second Amendment from the day it was passed limited the type of people who could own a gun. Can we just say, like, most common limitation to the Second Amendment you'll find in uh, the first hundred years of America are like, don't sell to that Native American tribe uh, no, because or, yeah, they'll point slaves, them back right? at us. Or slaves, yeah, exactly. Absolutely no, like even for, or or freed black men. Um, absolutely no. <laughs> don't do guns to them. So I don't know. This is not the August tradition of the Second Amendment. The type of people could own a gun, and what type of weapon you could own. You couldn't buy a cannon. Those are say the of the <laughs> that's the true. I wonder. Patriots, you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's actually I'm very not an funny. expert, but I was curious. <laughs> Like maybe it is true. Like cannons, cannons require though like uh, infrastructure. Like those are. I bet you, if you were rich enough, you could buy a cannon. I guess is what I'm trying I think to say. So too, man. <laughs> and all the stuff about how we're going to have to move against the government. Well, the tree of liberty is not water with the blood of patriots. What's happened is that there never been, if you wanted to think you need to have weapons to take on the government, you need F-15s and maybe some nuclear weapons. The point is that there's always been the ability to limit, rationally limit the type of weapon that can be owned. See, you just, that's all you need to fucking say. You don't need to do this thing where you're like, get an F-15 and then I'll maybe, maybe take you seriously, but like... Well, <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's such a bad way to to frame it politically. Obviously, if I was to say, but I like Biden honestly is very similar to uh, to Trump in the sense that 
you know, he's his handlers sometimes struggle to control him because that's not the best message uh, to be putting forward. And I don't know. I just I think it's very funny for the president of the United States to, to talk to us as if, like, you know, we're equals in that sense. Right. And when he's talking about the U.S. mill, like, you know, like as if he's sympathetic to that argument. Right. Um, but he's like, oh, but the military, which I don't control. Right, right? Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> it's like too powerful for you to feel. <laughs> but th- look, this is very like, you know, this is a silly way to frame it from Biden. And I just wanted to bring up if you have it uh, prepared or you can get to this Basil Marceau. Basil Marceau, yeah, got it. I, I just want to put them next to each other because effectively these, even though they're on bo- different sides of the issue, this is the exact same um, future that these people are presenting, which is a continuation and a constant fight over gun ownership in the United States as a way to, to this is so good, by the way, um, to, to score cheap political points. And just so I could put this forward, this is from the Republican um, primary in 2010 in, in, in Tennessee. And Basil Marceau is an internet meme if you're not familiar with him. Um, but this is very much like, you know, scraping the barrel when it came to campaign funding great 2010 <laughs> video editing stuff and anyways joe biden basil marceau have a lot of comment on this issue hello citizens this is basil marceau.com i'm your republican candidate for governor of tennessee i want you to put me in this building the capitol behind me here so i can do my issues <laughs> make us all more freer than you were yesterday. Ooh. And I'll become your governor. I'm going to move the capital. The capital to Chattanooga, Tennessee. At the state building with Don Sunquist. Just the worst audio. Temporary office. So I can clean house. And get rid of all the backroom politics. That ruins our politics program in Tennessee. Okay. I'll probably take a year or two. So, oh, pretty much well, like the Joe Biden plan, plan, right? Yeah, I gotta kick it down the road a little Oh, here it comes. If you vote for me... On the march. I won't take any campaign contributions. I'd rather lose than take campaign contributions. So you know I won't be bought and sold. And your rights will be protected for eternity. Even if I have to ride in blood. <laughs> I want you to vote for me. And I'll see you all at the polls. I would also plant vegetation. I do like this. On all vacant lots. Okay. That they take from us when we build roads and plant and turn it into ethanol. Well, okay. Cash it in for gas <laughs> for money. Then cash I it also for cash. Stop. Make judges listen to the oath. Listen uh, to this. Make the flag fly right. Remove the Goldfinch flag. Oh, I love that bit. From our society. Can you explain that to me? The, the flags? Gold, the Goldfinch flag? What's so, this is one of my favorite, favorite things. Um, and honestly, this is our 25th episode, so we can indulge. I actually realized I sent the wrong uh, clip on guns, which I'm sending the other one to you. But while, while we do that, the gold thing is so funny, Matt. Are you not familiar with that? It's not a big thing in the Dakotas. So, basically, the idea is that. Um, since, you know, if you go into a lot of courthouses, they have like the fancier flags that have the fringes around them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not the official United States <laughs> flag. 
I love giving a it's fuck as about stupid this. as you think, but it gets <laughs> even better, right? So it's not just like, oh, that's not the official one, so we don't like it. But somehow the flag, because I love how conservatives say about the Constitution and lawmaking in general, that it's some kind of like magical like experience. Um, that basically because they've been flying the wrong flags and courtrooms across America that like the vast majority of Supreme court decisions and court decisions that have been made, like don't count. <laughs> and uh, for whatever dude. reason, it's a big, really big thing in Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it might be elsewhere, but I know for a fact that it's very big in Tennessee. Cause it's something that keeps on coming up with the GOP there. That is the dumbest that to care about that. You've been misled horribly for a long time uh here's the, one the same thing with like the sovereign citizen guys yeah i'm sorry they all got the wrong video but that basil marceau thing is a, a treat you know i do like the Hello, yankee citizen. doodle i'm not a cop don't let me scare you I'm well, what's Mar- the fucking badge i was wondering about that what's okay the- but i'm sorry that's badass though <laughs> I'm not a cop. Don't let me scare you. But Running wh- for the for you know the GOP in Tennessee. Why is he wearing he'll, the bat? Oh, okay. Marcel.com, the Republican he governor for Tennessee. I'm here today next to this T-86L aircraft. I picked this location because I I like it a lot. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Hope it stays here forever. I'm here to talk about gun control. I'm here to talk about, like, script your shit out, bro. (laughs) Many people died for gun control in the military to make sure our Constitution stays full and alive and not be a dead The great gun uprising of 1897. Congressional Globe, 39th Congress, 38, 41, and 42. So I have to look back at our forefathers, how they wrote the Constitution. They knew we had murderers on the streets. They know we had nutcakes, but they didn't put no subgraphs, subparagraphs in there concerning them. So who am I to say, I'm gonna write an amendment to the constitution and say, nutcakes can't have guns, criminals can't have guns. Um, I'm just trying to imagine, like, I don't know. The idea that, like, a gun trader in 1813, like, the local nutcase would come into his establishment and be like, give me a gun. And he'd be like, oh, shit, this fucking Second Amendment means I have to give you this gun. Like, that's not how it works, Basil. (laughs) No, you're so right. So I have to then go look at the Constitution myself. And it says there that we have a right to bear arms against our government. At the moment, that'd be very difficult. The government have Patriot missiles. We have slingshots with stones. And they want they want to put numbers on the stone to find out where it came from. <laughs> so I'm not going to that. So I'm going to have to recall all licenses, all permits, and allow everyone in the state to have a gun. And if you uh, don't have one, maybe I'll even fine you $10 for not having <laughs> one because I want you all in a group of 25 or more to come to Nashville with your guns and tell me I'm doing wrong. And then we'll sit down at the table and discuss it. And 10 to 1, being that 
we, the people in charge, and I'm, I'm only borrowing this heat temporarily for uh, uh, eight years. So I'm gonna have to make, let them rule. So you know what? So on BasilMarcel.com. Yeah. Uh, I want you to say the Pledge of Allegiance every time you go down to the, the voting the place. BasilMarceau.com is more thoughtful than any Republican in uh, office today, I think. <laughs> Honestly, uh, that was it. I mean, this, it's a little bit, you know, walk down memory. Like 11 years ago, like I spent a lot of time watching Basil Marceau videos. His debates are pretty funny, too. Oh, damn. Um, he debated people? <laughs> well, yeah, because he, he really ran for, I mean, you know. No, what, what percent? What was his highest? No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, he's born like 28%. I can't imagine. But you know, anyways, I you know I, I messed up by giving us the wrong video up at the top. But like you know, it's essentially two sides of the same damn coin on the gun thing, right? Um, this like just bumbling argument about the conception of whether or not like a bunch of armed resistors could just take on the U.S. military. Yeah. Um, which you know, it's just like it's the way that they get each other riled up on both sides, right? Yeah. The Democrats get riled up because they get worried. Because honestly, like a lot of gun culture in America is extremely right wing, extremely fascist, and undoubtedly white nationalist. Oh yeah, right? there is like a the, we have a gun culture in this country because it's a settler colonial nation, and you wanted yep. to have the people who are on the front lines of colonialism armed to the teeth, right? There's no doubt about the the history of that. We're in all complete agreement on it, but. Um, but I am also saying that it's very clear about who is going to be targeted by any kind of gun measures in the United States. Um, and it's not going to be the characters that I think a lot of liberals think are going to be targeted. It's going to be a lot of normal working class American POC communities um, being targeted by the state. And I just think that people should be a little bit careful, especially um, when it comes to things like what we're seeing from Biden, where it's very clear what this is being used for to beef up a campaign message mm. that they want, they think the Republicans in 2022 are going to run ads that say the Democratic Party wants to defund the police. Aren't you against criminals? And then you're going to have Joe Biden. Listen here, Jack, you know, we gave $300 million to cities across the country to beef up their police departments. What are you talking right. about? This is a cynical ploy for them to put more money in the pockets of police departments, uh, which are much more of a threat to American people than gun ownership in general, I would say. Yeah. So left reckoning approves of the red basil Alliance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've vetted him enough. To know if we should be I don't know. I watched my two videos. I think I'm cool. <laughs> um, we got, we'll have some stu- uh, fun stuff to uh, go through in the uh, uh, post-game, folks. Um, Patreon.com slash Left Reckoning uh, to uh, join us there. Um, anything else you want to uh, say uh, in this part of the uh, program? No, just uh, thanks, everybody, so much for getting us to 25. Very humbled um, and, uh, you know, feeling a lot of love and looking forward to the next bit. You know, seriously, consider joining us in the post-game, too. You know, we take questions. I'm from the Discord. We have a really lively community there. So definitely consider joining up. I hope to see you on the other side. Absolutely. All right, folks. See you in about, see you patrons in about, I'd say 25 minutes.